From the Emory Wheel, I'm Gabriella Lewis. This is Wheel Talk. Emory College admitted its first Black student 58 years ago, but its integration continues today. On February 10th, The Wheel published 1963, an investigative project led by The Wheel's opinion section, exploring desegregation as an ongoing project and emphasizing the inequities that remain at Emory and The Wheel. Today, I speak with Rami Balarajan and Ben Thomas, who led the project. Hey. Hello. Can you guys introduce yourselves and what 1963 actually is? So my name is Brahmi and I'm one of the opinion editors here at The Wheel. My name is Ben and I'm the other opinion editor at The Wheel. And 1963 is really about desegregation and how it occurred at Emory and how that's not really a one and done thing, but really just an ongoing process. And you know, when we think about the university's history, we always think about like, oh, the university was founded in 1836. And these are the stories that continued from that day. But that was really only the case for white students and that narrative sort of contributes to a lot of erasure and doesn't really point to the inequities and where these inequities stemmed from. So 1963 was really just about finding these stories that were never really told and bringing them to light. And that erasure contributes to a lot of ongoing issues, many different marginalized communities on campus. And we really wanted to put this project together to center their voices and demonstrate to the wider Emory community that the desegregation that the university and the history books say happened in 1963 is an ongoing project that still needs a lot of attention today. So why 1963? Why did y'all decide to take a deep dive really into this subject? At least from the wheels perspective, over the summer, of course, there was this huge racial reckoning. But I think that, you know, consciousness about like understanding of issues of race like skyrocketed. But, you know, a lot of times that was for people who didn't really have to think about it before. For like POC people, like we've always been thinking about this. So I think from a wheel perspective, you know, analyzing our coverage, seeing the times where we've ignored these communities or outright, you know, done horrible things to them in our coverage or by not covering them at all, I think this was really necessary to shine a light on the groups that we all often miss. Yeah, and I think a lot of it is also about taking the energy that the summer sort of poured out in the country as a whole and both translating it to Emory and the Emory community in the wheel, which didn't necessarily have their own, you know, massive protests in the streets. But I think more importantly, it's about immortalizing that energy and giving it a clearer structure and using it to uncover stories that haven't really been discussed or relived or experienced experienced by anyone since they occurred 50, 60 years ago. So we're going to break down a couple of pieces within the larger 1963 project. There's um, about 10 of them in whole, but we're going to talk about three today. So the first one we're going to start with is The Desegregation of the Wheel, A Work in Racial Reckoning and Reconciliation, which was written by you two as well as also Shreya Pabaraju. Can you tell us what this piece is about? So this piece was really our, I would call it the centerpiece of the 1963 project, in that we really took it as a way of looking at, in several different contexts, how the wheel desegregated, how the people who experienced that experienced it differently based on their positions within the wheel and their identities, and the extent to which that process is still playing out today. The first section was about coverage, and in that we discussed mostly events from the 1960s and 1970s, and to do that, we relied on a combination of interviews with 
with people like the Reverend Dr. Otis Turner, who worked at the wheel and was also the first black student admitted to Candler. He and, and people like the editor-in-chief at the time, who was, I, I think in the, in the mid-1970s, Brenda Mooney, they had a lot to say about the extent to which the wheel was still prejudiced and still very inaccessible. In addition to those interviews, we also did a lot of work diving into the archives of the wheel that the Rose Library holds and into past yearbooks. And from that, we found honestly horrific things. It was really quite shocking, you know, like we'd be just like looking through the archives, like clicking on random like dates, like hoping we'd get something interesting. And like we would click on something and then just this like huge picture of the KKK would pop up and like as something the wheel had documented and the wheel had published. And, you know, it was really quite horrifying, but I think it also really gave some insight into the false equivalency between having black students on campus, but not really creating an inclusive environment for us, for them. We're not really listening to what they actually needed. After that, we talked a little bit about both culture and a little bit about um, the DEI efforts at the wheel. One thing that's often said is the difference between representation and the difference between inclusivity. So I think a lot of times with DEI, people think like, for example, for Asian Americans, they think, okay, there's a lot of Asian Americans at the wheel or, you know, there's a lot of Asian Americans at Emory in general, but does that mean that they're included there? Or does that mean that they have the same access or the same or do they have structural barriers or do they face discrimination that prevent them from navigating these systems the same way as their white counterparts? So I wanna get more into what you guys talked about, specifically right now about the coverage of the wheel. Can you tell us a little bit about how the wheel made the decisions of what to cover and what communities became excluded and the, you know, how they covered the pretty important topics on campus, starting with the, you know, quote, desegregation of 1963. As we looked in the archives, issues of the wheel in the early 1970s to mid 1970s, we found that there was actually a split in in the wheel at the time. Several editors of the wheel decided to form their own paper called the Emory New Times because, because of what they called the wheel's failures to be objective in journalism and to present balanced views from both sides. But as we as we looked further throughout the, the five years or so during which the wheel and the New Times existed in tandem, we found that it was honestly more an ideological difference than a journalistic ethics one, and that the, the New Times thought the wheel was somehow a, a hippie paper, too progressive for the, the campus. Four or five months ago, very eerily, the, the exact same thing happened at Emory today, when the Emory wig formed after a few wheel opinion writers split off and felt that they were not treated fairly, not represented ideologically in the in the wheels pages. One big thing that we've been seeing is there's a sort of this idea of free speech and this idea of, you know, needing to platform all views. And one thing we found from the 60s is that was probably the same argument that they used when they published, you know, articles with pictures of the KKK and articles with interviews from the KKK and not even in the sense of, you know, a look back or in the sense of like something happened, but that was just something that they sought out and they sought to publish, right? I think it really blurs down to what's the line of hate speech? Like, is it hate speech if someone argues that, you know, police brutality isn't real, but that they are doing that through, you know, the lens of calling it you know, conservatism, because I mean, if you can't back that up factually, or if then that's really just, I think, blurring the line of what is okay to be published and what's not okay to be published. And I think a lot of times, especially in this modern day, we're seeing, you know, these ideas be clouded by the idea of free speech when it's really just something that might be too hateful to be published. 
in absolute terms, that's not the most serious omission from our coverage, and it's not the most serious way in which our coverage has harmed people on campus. Maybe the most flagrant and recent example of that would be when a few years ago, there were a few events about DACA on campus. When the wheel covered those events, they sent photographers to take pictures of the, the protests and the speakers with full views of their faces. And news writers there interviewed several people attending the protests, and I think at least one speaker. And despite the fact that they were DACA students and could face any number of dangers in the future by virtue of, of that status, they published their names in the paper. And ever since, that community has not, for very good reason, interacted with the wheel. So there was an immense amount of research that went into this project from archives to interviews with alumni. In total, how many interviews did y'all actually do for this piece? We spoke to about 26 alumni, I believe. And I think one of the most common trends that I saw from editors and writers from the 60s is they would say, you know, we lived in a bubble back then. Like we didn't even think about race or we thought that just having POC students were like enough. We didn't think about that next step or like actually recruiting POC students. We thought just if they were there and they had equal opportunity, that that was enough. And I think that's something that really mirrors a lot of sentiments today. We talk a lot about representation. We talk a lot about all of these things, but in terms of these larger structural barriers, I think before the summer, a lot of things were taken for granted and sort of just there was sort of this mindset that, you know, racial justice would eventually happen instead of something that people needed to work for. The project moves to the 1970s and the Vietnam War and what that brought to Emory via discrimination, protests, etc. So the next piece we're going to talk about is The Legacy of Asian American Activism at Emory, which was written by Cindy Chang, Sarah Khan, Jessica Liu, and Alice Zhang. Can you set the stage for us during the Vietnam War era, what was happening on campus? It definitely took longer for this surge of activism to reach Emory as compared to other campuses. So we saw, you know, a lot of this activism started at Berkeley and then started at the West Coast and then sort of trickled its way across the country. But then when it finally did hit Emory, we saw that a lot of the activism was sort of seen without the inclusion of the role that race played in the Vietnam War movement. So we saw a lot of students organizing a lot of anti-war protests, but there was no real coverage or there was no real talks about how like the role race played in an issue that so clearly embodied race. Alice saying one of the other authors of this piece told us a little more about that. At other schools, there were anti-Vietnam War protests, but at Emory, there was a pro-Vietnam War protest. And, you know, that's really astounding to us because I think um, anti-Vietnam War protests is where Asian students really come together. And that's the kind of point in American history that students really, you know, stood their ground on the West Coast. But it didn't happen at Emory. So after the Vietnam War, there's all this protest and, as you said, you know, glaring racial issues that were really ignored. But can you tell us about how Asian American activism actually progressed post-Vietnam War? That is really when people in the U.S. were thinking about how, oh, yes, there are all different types of people in the U.S. And we have to start thinking about this. You know, a lot of schools on the West Coast and the East Coast were thinking like, We need ethnic studies. You know, it was really centered around a, you know, let's say non-Asian American perspective, but an Asian perspective. 
So in the 90s, I kind of wrote about how there was an Asian American student organization, and it was run by the alumni, Stephen Chen. He ran the Students in Alliance for Asian American Concerns. He was involved with all the other Asian American groups that still exist today, a lot of them, like Indian Cultural Exchange, Korean Union, like Korean Student Organization, Chinese Student Organization, Taiwanese Student Organization. When Stephen was here and a lot of his friends at Emory, they were thinking, like, we need to build an Asian American coalition and a group that wants to talk about Asian American identity. And so his organization that I write about is really the organization that attempts to bring all the cultural groups together to think about their identity. So one thing we saw was that it wasn't really like the surge of activism wasn't really documented by the wheel or by the university or by these other sources on campus. So the only way that we know about this history and we know about the impact that they had was because some documents were sort of like left in a building and someone stumbled upon them. And because of that, we have that history. But I think it's really haunting to think about just how close we came to losing this huge grasp of history and how much of it could have very easily been lost and contributed to the whitewashing of Emory's history and the role that Asian American activists played because they, you know, they really did play a really huge role. I think, you know, we see one of the biggest things that Asian Americans face in a lot of different facets of life is erasure. And that's something that happens by the media. And that's something that happens in daily life and in politics and in so many different spheres of the world. And so I think that this was just one different iteration of that, but it really exemplifies one of the core issues that Asian American activists were fighting against. But ironically enough, what they were fighting for was almost erased. I mean, I'm so grateful that we have that history, but I think it also says a lot that it was almost lost. We've talked a lot today about the history of Emory and the history of desegregation, but in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement this summer, desegregation has continued on our campus in the past year in the form of demands from Black students. Editorial board member Rachel Brown outlines these for us today. So, Rachel, you played an integral role in the investigative project 1963, writing a piece called Listen to Black Students, Stop Ignoring Their Pain, which explored a variety of things, but specifically the lists of demands that Black students have given the university. Can you tell us a little bit about that piece and why you wrote it? So this article really focused on kind of the legacy of um, Black student demands, Black student protests, and kind of what has actually happened. Largely because I feel like a lot of um, what we do is we see these demands and then we don't necessarily see progress. So this is kind of looking at what the university actually does after these demands. Like we can see all the demands, but how do they manifest? How are they actually shown in university institutions and policies? So part of my goal was to kind of really investigate what is Emory doing in response to Black students and are they doing what they say that they're going to do. So if you go read the full piece, which I encourage everyone to go do, you'll see that there are four lists of demands that have been authored since the hypothetical desegregation of 1963. Rachel, can you outline some of those for us? 
So I'm just going to start with kind of the framework that happened in 1969. There was a lot of focus on um, making room for black spaces and black faculty. This included advocating for a house for black students, which we know is the BSA house now. Um, this also was advocating for a permanent full-time administrator for black students that focused on black issues, functions, etc. Also advocating for um, a black psychiatrist um, that would occupy, I guess, what they, their version of CAPS. And then also also a need for um, an African-American reading room. So a lot of the initial demands really focused on spaces um, and where black students are able to have their space at this historically and definitely at the time and currently predominantly white institution. Then as we moved into 1990, a lot of these demands were still um, focused. The 1990 demands came after um, a black student named Sabrina Collins said that there were different acts of racial violence um, and terrorism committed against her. And it's kind of hard to say um, if that was necessarily real or not. There's a lot of kind of debate in the records and the archive that I could find. But because of this issue and because of um, Sabrina's allegations, there came out this list of 12 demands um, from black students similar to the 1969 demands. Um, it started kind of with talking about paying for Sabrina Collins' care, both medical and psychological, and then it went into the larger issues surrounding Black students at the time. So there was another call for, um, af for more spaces for African Americans, including a research and a student center that could have its own faculty appointments and would offer undergraduate degrees like we have our current African American Studies Department. And it would also demand that an African and African-American studies become a distribution requirement in which two classes must be taken in order to graduate. That one is particularly important um, because, as we know, we do have low race um, and ethnicity GRE coming up. It's not going to start until fall of this year, and it's only one class throughout the four years at Emory. So it's definitely different than what the initial demand was. Um, there was also a demand focusing on full-time professors of African descent, visiting scholars, a cultural center similar to the 1969 demands, and really focusing a lot on what the university can do both academically and emotionally. So once again, focusing on full-time counselors who are sensitive to issues and needs of people of color, but especially people of African descent. From 1969 to 1990, at least in terms of these demands, it didn't necessarily seem like a lot was done um, to accommodate these Black students and to meet their demands. And then when we get into our demands from last year, they were a lot, they were a lot more focused on both the legacy of the demands and our current era. So they include new things like defunding the EPD, making sure to maintain the spaces that were created. Also a new issue of renaming different buildings such as Long Street Means. And so they were a lot more focused on trying to see where the university has gone and how much more they have to do. And it was a lot more focused on kind of creating or continuing um, to make sure that it is a safe space for black students. So it took 30 years of lobbying from black students for the university to finally implement the GER. Yes. And so Rachel, what do you believe are the next steps that the university needs to take to support black students? I think one thing that's that's really big here is there are a lot of there's a lot of red tape, there's a lot of administrative issues and there's a lot of issues regarding the endowment. Um, progress is very very slowly being made, but it's not evident to students by the time like you and I both leave the university, there isn't going to be much of like a remarkable change that we can really see other than the like race and ethnicity GRE, but 
that took 20, like 30 years, be committed to substantial change in a timely fashion. You know, there, there's this new committee about naming honors, but it had been out for a year and then it was disbanded and then it was reappointed. LSM is still LSM and Black students still have to sleep and live um, in a space that named that was named after a confederate. The university does care, but not enough. It is evident of the larger issue that the university is has not been focused on listening to black students. They'll listen and then kind of make the demands go away or they'll they'll say, I'm listening, here's a task force, let's do something or like talk about the same subject for years and years and years until these students leave and they are alumni and they're still advocating for these issues and then it's every single year the cycle of violence is replicated every single year it's not easy especially when you feel like you're not wanted here but especially when the university kind of condones those feelings and kind of accepts that that is part of what it means to go to emory Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Wheel Talk. To read the full 1963 project, head to emerywheel.com. I'll talk to you soon. Wheel Talk is produced by Kaylin Chin, Isaiah Poritz, Madison Bower, and Gabriella Lewis. Reporting contributed by Isabel Packard, music by Kevin McLeod, and cover art by Kaylin Chin.